0: Good evening, how are you doing? All right, two, two more weeks left in Revelation. I can feel a sense of mourning. Um, it, it, it's been, uh, it's been quite, a, quite a bit of pace, um, especially last week. And like I said, we got through uh, 15 through 17, so I think you're going to pick up 18, right? And then uh, 19 and 20 will be the focus of tonight. But uh, it's been, been a great semester. Like I say, this, we have covered an enormous amount of material. If, you, if you've missed anything, the entire semester is podcast out on our, out on our website. Uh, just go to stationhill dot com and, and it's it's under the the media tabs. Um, any any big announcements? I guess winding down the semester, heading into summer.
1: Next week's it.
0: Yeah, and I'll, and this will be my last week because I've got Micah's award ceremony. So yes, my, my last week last week with you guys. Let's show Brian a,
1: a, our appreciation for his teaching. Yes. If nothing, the badge of honor he endured for taking us through the heart of Ezekiel.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, twelve through twelve through forty-eight in three weeks. That that there's got to be some kind of war medal for that. I think so. I mean, it, Your mansion
1: got a little bigger in heaven.
0: I, I guess so. Holy cow! I still have still have flashbacks. They kind of post traumatic from Ezekiel uh, wheels and chariots and flames. Um, but let's, let's, let's pray and get into God's word. Father God, we, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word, Father. Thankful for your truth that we have a fixed point, right, and in all this chaos that's going on in our world, Father, to have something fixed, yes. right, to have, to have the rock that we can build on. And so, Father, as, as we explore your word tonight, Father, open our hearts and our minds to who Jesus is and the certainty of his promises, Father. And so we live today in the certainty of these things. And, and change us, Father. We should never encounter your truth and walk away the same. And so, Father, change us in this encounter with your truth in this encounter with your word. Make us more like Christ. Let your Holy Spirit do his His, his work in us. And be with Jay as he teaches. Give him your words. Uh, uh, let him speak where you need to speak. Keep him silent where you keep him silent. And, and open our hearts to your message. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Brian. Yep. Yep. And Joel, we're going to use this again in just a minute, by the way, the handheld. I don't usually, but I'm going to have some readers help me. Um, so open up your Bibles to Revelation 18. We're going to pick up where Brian left off. I, because this is kind of the end of the bowl sequence, I almost skipped it. And then I read it and I was like, nope, two things. One, we made it all the way through some of these books. We're going to read every verse of Revelation before the semester is out. So if we've done nothing else, right, we've read it all uh, but also it does set up, uh, 19 and 20. And so, man, we have been working our way through this material and here's, what's really interesting about chapter 18. Um, how many of you and guys, it's okay. Again, judgment-free zone. How many of you love musicals? Anybody out there? Okay. Yes. I see some hands, right? Uh, so my daughters have been involved with musical theater. Uh, I did just a smidge of it uh, towards the tail end of my high school career. Um, spent a lot of time playing sports, but was introduced to it then. And so what's interesting is that, of course, the funny part of musicals to us is like they're just right in the middle of a you know, conversation and all of a sudden a song breaks out. Uh, you know, and then the ones in which they sing, there are some musicals every word is sung. Uh, and sometimes they might force a little. Uh, but what's fascinating is that goes all the way back to Greek theater, which was around in the time of Jesus and in the first century. Uh, And so Greek theater, you would have actors on the stage, usually far fewer actors, uh, and they would wear different masks. But then, as in now, sometimes as an audience, you have a hard time keeping up. So there's something called the Greek chorus. As a matter of fact, that's where we get our word, right, for a choir or a chorus is from the Greek. And during, as they were changing scenes, that chorus would sing a song that would help interpret and explain what was taking place. Well, that is Revelation chapter 18. Uh, It is in the form of a Greek chorus. So I have five readers that I have enlisted to be our chorus tonight to sing. You didn't know I was going to make you sing, did you? (laughs) They're all panicked right now. This is awesome. All right. No, I'm not going to make you sing. But to read to us the fall of Babylon. So all five of you come on up and you've got numbers on your post-it, all right? And so, since some of you want to hold your Bible or whatever, so one, two, three, four, five. So, we're going to read this together. And I'm just going to let you guys go one to the next. Uh, and, uh, and we follow along in your Bibles. And obviously, Brian uh, helped us set this up last week with understanding the bulls. Uh, and so, uh, put this down a little bit because we want to hear that angelic voice. So, yes, you can tell your husband you read the part of an angel tonight when you get home. All right? All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 18.
2: After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people,
0: so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. For this reason her plagues will come in just one day death and grief and famine, she will be burned up with fire, because the Lord God who judges her is mighty.
2: When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory. Costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin.
0: And every shipmaster, seafar, the sailors, and all who do business by sea, stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out. Who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning. Woe, woe, the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth. For in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her. Heaven. Heaven. And you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has executed your judgment on her.
2: Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of the harpist, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again, and the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. And this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because, of, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and the blood of the prophets and saints and all of those slaughtered on the earth was found in you. Well done. Would you give you a hand to our Greek
1: chorus tonight, giving us their top 10 hit, The Fall of Babylon. So it's fascinating. The longest song in a book about worship is The Fall of Babylon. And I find it fascinating when we read it, and again, this is how uh, prophecy telescopes, to remember that Babylon, of course, all the way back to ancient times represented the empires that were opposed to God's people. Uh, they represent culture uh, of the world, right? These were cultured cities, the original Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and so, everything that every culture in every generation has held up as oh, look at how incredible we are. Look at our art, look at our uh, songs, look at our commerce, look at all of these things. And every generation, every culture, right, that's what's being represented here. And we've seen cultures grow increasingly and increasingly depraved and broken, proud of themselves. And when they are judged here, there's a couple of things that stand out. One is a fall in a single day that all of the wisdom of mankind, all right, all of our artworks and museums and all of the things that we're so proud about, right, our, our commerce and our shipping and all of these things, all of it under the judgment of God falls in a single day. We also see the kings of the earth do what? Run away. They have been so proud of themselves for being totally immersed, totally taken by a culture, but when it falls under judgment, what happens? They run away they're not loyal and faithful in contrast with God's people who remain loyal and faithful to the end. And so we see at the very end of this chapter that, uh, under these corrupt cultures in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Uh, and so the reality is, is God's people suffer. And as Christians, we feel more and more marginalized by our culture. And the book of Revelation tells us this is what we should expect. And yet, at the same time, this is incredibly hopeful for us because it reminds us that all of the stuff that the world cares about, the places high values in, the things that are outside of Christ, that one day they will be judged. And they will be burned up like wood, like straw, like hay, right, thrown into a fire. And so it's important for us to remember that. And I think it's fascinating because you've got, and the reason why I think it's the longest song in the book of Revelation is because the world has been singing that song, right, in her pride for a long, long time. In contrast with the reality of the cry of God's people, which is simple and straightforward because we point to one gospel, we point to one truth and one reality, and that message stays the same in every generation. So with that, uh, let's jump into chapter 19, the banquet, the bridegroom, and the battle. One of the things we have to remember too, a note that I made uh, listening to Brian's excellent teaching last week, we need to remember that even when God's enemies, our enemies are being judged, that we don't lick our chops, right? Instead, we express humble gratitude. Uh, This should have been us under judgment. This, this should have been us. And these are the people that we know and we work with and we love. The people who are in our families who are lost. And this is the judgment that they're under unless they find hope in Jesus Christ. Unless they find grace in Christ. And so we need to remember that. Uh, as we kind of wrap up the idea of the bulls. So Michael Wilcock helps us bring that together, kind of recapping the past few weeks. Again and again, trouble will sweep the world, the seals, whenever suffering is caused. God warns that it cannot be caused with impunity, the trumpet judgments. So whenever his warning goes unheeded, he will end in the end punish the wrongdoers because our God is a God of justice. So we live in the tension between the now and the not yet. But one day, God will judge all of these things and bring it to a close. And so we hold on to that hope. And that's the hope that we now get to lean into in in an increasingly powerful way, beginning with chapter 19. We see yet another scene of worship. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Another reality, the song of Babylon is sung by the great chorus, right? Individual singers, the angels uh, and and, and others. But now he hears a multitude singing. So imagine an individual singer up against like the best rock and gospel choir you've ever heard. And they are belting it out, crying out, hallelujah. Now underline and highlight this because this was remarkable to me. Hallelujah, we find a thousands of times probably in the Old Testament, right? From two Hebrew words that are put together, Hallel, which is the word for praise, and Yah, which is short for Yahweh. So praise God, praise Yahweh. What I never realized, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. The word Hallelujah doesn't appear in the New Testament, not in the ministry of Jesus, not in the Gospels. Not in the early church, not until here is the word hallelujah used. So why not? Because this is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the moment in which all of the promises of the old covenant, right, are now fulfilled through the church, now into the new covenant. So if you've ever wondered about the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, here it is in one word. The word hallelujah in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. So hallelujah, praise Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the new. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants, Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. And the smoke from her, Babylon, goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. So after the long song of the defeat of Babylon, we see this word hallelujah, revelation tying together all the threads as we now see, as if there was any doubt before, that our God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. There's only one God and he is worthy of all praise. And so this moment of praise leads into a moment of celebration. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like a waterfall, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, as a pastor, I regularly officiate weddings. And as exciting as weddings are in our culture today, all the money that's spent, everybody who gets dressed up, uh, all of the the party, the reception, all of our traditions, i got to be blunt with you. They kind of pale in comparison to Jewish weddings. Uh, In the first century in particular, uh, this was a big, big deal. There was probably no more important moment, no more celebratory uh, moment that was more important in a person's life than their wedding, in particular for the bride. And so basically, this is the wedding invitation going out, that the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun. And it's important for us to know uh, that there are stages to a Jewish wedding. And there's a lot of the New Testament that begins to make a lot more sense and a lot of the things Jesus and his disciples say if we understand this background. So you can go online, you can learn tons more about this. Joel and others who, who have lived in, in and around Jewish cultures, been to a Jewish wedding, I've never been to one. Uh, they probably have even deeper insights than I do. But when I discovered this on my first trip to Israel, went back and researched a little bit more, it was eye-opening. So there are three stages to a Jewish wedding. The first one is what's called the betrothal uh, or the shadukan. Uh, and so what happens is, uh, in this moment, that you've got a young man who wants to you know, marry a, a woman. And in this moment, you know, in our culture, you, know, you go pick out an engagement ring, you've dated for a while, those kind of things. You set the scene, you get down on one knee, and you propose. It was a much more formal affair with the, the Jewish people. So what would take place was there would be an arrangement made, and usually the conversation was primarily between the young man and his father and the bride's father. There would be a discussion, I want to marry your daughter. If the father agreed to allow the invitation to be given, then what they began was a negotiation for the bride price, or what we sometimes call a dowry. This still happens in some places in the world. When I was in Kenya a couple of years ago, I discovered that if you have a daughter, that the groom still has to pay a dowry and you have to pay it in the equivalent of cattle in Kenya. So if you are to marry, for instance, a woman of a, of a high class there, she might be worth 3000 cattle. Now they don't really swap cattle anymore, but they figure out what a cow is worth and you have to pay that much to the bride's father. I have three daughters. I think this would be a wonderful tradition to bring to our culture. Because i got to have some help paying for these weddings, y'all. Not only that, I might be in the worst possible situation. Because my little girls have tagged along with me to, uh, you know, 50 weddings over the years. Meaning, in their mind, they have this composite of all of their favorite things they've ever seen. Like, I'm in trouble, y'all. So... Uh, anyway, but, that, but that's what they did. There was a negotiation that took place. And so at some point, uh, the reality was they agreed upon a price. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He's using wedding language, right? That the groom, Jesus, has bought you the bride, the bride of Christ. Therefore, you need to honor that payment that was made. Uh, And so it was a down payment. So then they had a ceremony if the down payment was agreed upon. And at that ceremony, a cup of wine instead of a wedding ring was offered to the bride by the groom-to-be. And so if she accepted it, then that was called what? The cup of the covenant. So in the New Testament, in places like Matthew 22, Matthew 26, right, where that phraseology is used, the cup of the covenant, that was also wedding language. So when Jesus stood up at the Last Supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, right, he's inaugurating a marriage between himself and his disciples, the church. All of a sudden, all those word pictures begin to make more sense when you understand that. And so if she would take the cup and drink it, right, then they'd kind of have a little mini ceremony. And then it was they were betrothed. And if you were betrothed, it was as if you were already married in their culture. So remember, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And that's why it says when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant, he sought to divorce her quietly. Because at that point, if you had drank the cup and you had agreed to the covenant, to the commitment of the marriage, you had to be divorced from that commitment. So that was phase one, the Shadukin. Phase two was what's called the the preparation or the interval time or the waiting, which is called the Kedushin. So during that time, often the, the, the groom's family or the groom did not have the money yet to be able to pay the full dowry. So he had to go out and he had to earn that money. So he had to work. And he had to set aside that money to be able to pay the father of the bride. During that time, he also went to his own father and the way the Jewish people lived was they didn't go off and build their own house, but you would build a room onto the house of the patriarch. You shared often, uh, you know, your, your kitchen and your common living space and your courtyard and those kind of things. So everyone went and lived with the father, the patriarch of the family. So you had to build a room onto your house, hence Jesus in John chapter 14. In my father's house, there are many rooms and I have gone ahead to prepare a place for you. And so, that room that was built on to which you would one day, right, bring home your bride and start your family, and you and your kids would live in that room, it had to be built to the father's specifications. And so, if you weren't good at construction, the father would say, up, oh, tear it down and start all over again. So, I'm just glad that, all right, I, you know, I didn't grow up in Don Reed's house because I don't know that I could have ever met his exacting specifications uh, for the room because Don is an expert builder. But that's the way it worked. And so as all that's happening, sometimes this process would take weeks. Sometimes this process would take months. Sometimes this process might take years. Remember the story of Jacob and Rachel in the Old Testament? That's what he's doing, right? He's going away to try to earn the money. That was an early version of what became this Jewish tradition. And all of a sudden, it begins to make more sense. It also explains the parables about the uh, the bride and her attendants, her bridesmaids, who are in waiting. And so one of the cool traditions of that time was that once he had finally earned the money, and once the the father of the groom had finally said, okay, the room's ready, you've earned your money, you've proven you're mature enough, now go get your bride. They had a tradition of sneaking up on them in the middle of the night. And so the, brides, uh, the, the, the uh, bride-to-be and her bridesmaids were always supposed to be in anticipation of the fact that the groom could show up in any moment. And when the groom showed up, the wedding was on. Translation, you didn't have time to go get fitted for your dress. You didn't have time to go make preparations for your reception. You didn't have time to go get your flowers. Like you had to be in a constant state of preparation. And so they were supposed to always be watching and waiting because at any moment, the groom could come. And they were supposed to be on their toes. And again, it could take days, it could take months. In some documented cases, it took years. Can you imagine, ladies, having no idea when your wedding was going to (laughs) be? How would life be like if you lived with that stress? If he could come any time course, you'd know if he was a slacker or not. You're like, there's no way, right? Like this guy's going to be ready for a year or two. I'm good. But it's a fascinating tradition and it makes so much more sense of some of these biblical metaphors and word pictures for us. Matthew 24, 12, or 42, I'm sorry. Be alert because you don't know the day your Lord is coming to get you. So right now, as God's people, That metaphor applied to us. We're supposed to be on our toes, right? Because we don't know when the bridegroom is going to come and get us. We've got to always be ready. But when he shows up, party is on. And so they would immediately grab the bride and seven days of feasting would begin. Not just like one little wedding reception. Not just a couple of dances, but a week of feasting and celebration. Uh, It was as lavish as it could be, as lavish as they could afford. All of the family and the community came together. Uh, It was to launch them into their marriage. And remember where Jesus' first miracle took place, at a wedding. There was some serious foreshadowing there, hint, hint, wink, wink. Isn't that cool to think about how it all weaves together? And so in this moment, what we're getting here is the party of all parties, the greatest celebration in their culture was these wedding feasts. And so I remind people of that at a wedding, right? This is the picture the joy, the laughter, the pictures, the excitement, all of those things. This is a picture lived out in miniature of what we're going to experience at the me- wedding feast of the Lamb. I mean, you all, we watch the royal weddings in England, right? People are glued to those things. Any of you ladies or guys get up early in the morning to watch this last royal wedding? Nobody? I know I have friends who did. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. People were infatuated with that. Y'all, this makes that look like a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. Bottom line, it cannot hold a candle to what this celebration is going to be like. And so verse nine, the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And get this, John is so overwhelmed that he would be invited to the party. I fell down at his feet to worship him. So the angel is delivering the message. John is so overcome, I get to go. He falls down and he starts worshiping the angel to which the angel's like, I'm just the mailman. If you get an invitation in the mail to like a really exciting event, you don't fall down and worship at the feet of the mailman. And that's basically what the angel says. You must not do that. Which, by the way, side note, there is some good theology here. We don't worship angels. They're messengers. We don't worship them. The angels tell us themselves not to. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? The angels see us as brothers, fellow servants who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. There it is again. Worship God and him alone. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So now we know what the banquet is going to be like. And we have seen Jesus in Revelation as number one, the Lord of the churches back in chapter two and three, all through all of these judgments, the slain lamb whose sacrifice unlocks the scrolls. Now we see him as the bridegroom who comes as a victor for his bride, the church. So what is our groom like? Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, exclamation point. Why is a white horse a big deal? Because that was the kind of horse that Roman generals rode in the victory parade after the victory was already won. So get that. He comes to fight the last battle And yet he rides the horse of a victor. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So our groom is a victorious warrior. Whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Let's pause there. The crowns of the saints, Stephanos, the laurel wreath of the victor who has endured to the end. Why is Jesus now wearing diadems? That's the crowns of the kings of the world. What does that mean? He's conquered them all. He's conquered them all. And so he is the conquering king. He has a name written that no one knows but himself there are some things that are indescribable. There are some things that are too uh, wonderful and mysterious for us to know. But he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Look with me at Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. This is the prophecy of the Lord's day of vengeance. Who is this that comes from Eden in crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? He responds, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. His robes are stained with the ones he has conquered. With those that he has brought judgment against. And so he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And uh, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Hold on to that thought. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's not the word for like a little sword that we hold in our hand. It's a giant spear. So imagine the biggest sword, right? Excalibur, whatever it is in your imagination. That's what you see coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, the prophecy of Psalm 2 again. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written. He is marked as well. right? We've talked about the mark of the beast, the fact that God's saints are sealed with a mark. And guess what? Jesus? has his mark as well. It's a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, the emperors of Rome referred to themselves as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus says, guess what, boys? I've come to take my name back. I mean, y'all, behold your God. So there are those of us who in our mind, picture six pounds, seven ounce baby Jesus in a manger. Cute and cuddly, right? And yes, praise God for the incarnation, but this is who our Jesus is. And sometimes we need to remember this picture of warrior Jesus, That he's not merely some long-haired, like he's portrayed in all of the movies about him, right? Pert plus, perfect flowing hair, hippie looking guy, going around teaching nice things with his flowing robes, right? He came to do that. But let's not miss the picture that Revelation gives us of him as the mighty warrior with the sword coming out of his mouth, coming to reclaim his people, coming to reclaim the title that is rightfully his, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hold that in your heart and mind. When you feel tempted, when you feel like the world is overwhelming you, when you feel worried for the global church and the persecution it's under, remember that it's this Jesus who comes fascinating to me. And then we see the battle of the beast. What has he come to do? Because the groom's going to fight a battle before the party gets started. and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army so right now get that epic movie imagination going right whatever your thing is lord of the rings superhero movies ben-hur right this is the massive battle scene and babylon has been crushed now the beasts have unleashed their armies they are assembled here comes jesus on the white horse we're ready for this epic battle are you ready for it And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet in his presence. I guess it's the biggest letdown battle in the history of the world. I mean, I want to see the sword flying. I want to see stuff happening, right? But the beast is captured and with it the false prophet. So the beasts are immediately rendered unable. I love, Pastor Mike Glenn preached on this a few years ago, Right? And he said, it's like you're standing there in the scene and all of a sudden the vultures start to circle. That's what he's talking about. The feast of the beast, right? Except for the vultures aren't circling around the roadkill that's already dead. They're circling around the beast and his armies. If I'm a general, I might be a little nervous. Well, what's happening? What's happening?
2: And then here comes
1: Jesus on the white horse and he's like to the beast, hey, you, big guy in the back, right? He's like, come here. Boom, captured. And here's what he said. The beast was taken prisoner. Are you listening? Because some of you hear that beast growl, don't you? And he applies it. It might be your addiction. It might be your woundedness. It might be a pain that you don't think will ever, ever heal. You don't think this hurt will ever stop bleeding because the only thing you hear is the roar of the beast saying, I own you. You'll do what I say you do. You're in, uh, you're in my way that if you'll ever get out because all you hear is the roar of the beast you live in the prison of that darkness and jesus calls him out with one word he puts him in prison and in chains and throws him into hell and locks the door behind him so pay attention even the beast knows it's over why don't you You see, this is not a battle. This isn't Star Wars, right? Light and dark and yin and yang. E2 equal and opposite powerful forces, you know, trying to bring balance to the force. No, this is Jesus and he conquers and the enemy can't hold a candle to him in any way. In contrast to the feast of the lamb, there's about to be a lot of roadkill for the vultures. The only fate worse than death, remember from our study of Ezekiel, was to be left unburied. And so that's the fate of those who align themselves with the beast. Not only death, but also dishonor. It's a sobering picture of God's judgments. If you choose to worship anything other than him, in the end, when the final judgment comes, roadkill. 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 And so, obviously, Megiddo, Armageddon, we've talked about that, it's referred to in 1616, where these battles take place. As I told you in week one, this, this was the place throughout history where civilization after civilization built on top of itself a city. And it's where great evil and pagan worship happened. And so, isn't it poetic justice and beautiful that the Bible says this is where Jesus puts an end to evil once and for all? So, we think it's a battle. But really, it's not about the battle. It's a love story. A groom who has come for his bride. And by the way, did you notice what we come dressed in? Verse 14. I said, hold that thought. Did you see it? And the armies of heaven arrayed in what? Fine linen. That's how you dress for a wedding. Linen. That was the finest material in that era of history. White linen, pure white linen that wasn't dirty in any way. We come dressed for a party. The armies of heaven ride behind Jesus, not dressed for a fight, but dressed for the party. Yeehaw, right? White and pure, following him on our own white horses, the horse of victors. So because of him, we don't have to fight. He's already won the battle, right, on the cross and in the resurrection, so we get to show up for the party and Jesus does it all. He doesn't need us. Did you catch in the Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 63? He says, I'll do this alone. Salvation is mine. I'll do it by my right hand. So don't be mistaken thinking that Jesus needs you. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's perfectly capable of defeating the enemy and winning every battle totally on his own. Instead, We are the objects of his affection and his love and his grace and his mercy. We're the ones that he's coming back for. Let that make your heart beat fast. Let that move you to know that that's how much Jesus loves you. And so we see the demise of the beast the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. The sword always symbolic of the word of God and its power. And all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. So it is total and complete annihilation, utter victory for the rider on the white horse. And now we come to chapter 20, the millennium, the death of death, and the great white throne. I appreciate what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says. Yes, it would have been much tidier if the battle in chapter 19 had seen off all of God's adversaries. Nobody would have grumbled if Satan had been part of the defeated host and the book had proceeded straight to the new Jerusalem. But revelation is seldom tidy, at least not in the way that we would like. So we've got the millennium. And as I've quoted John Stott before with you guys, the millennium is the thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about irony of all ironies. And we're going to unpack that in just a few minutes. But a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. All three major positions are held by sincere believers. So let's be careful that we don't use our various interpretations to criticize or divide. Ephesians four counsels us about keeping unity in the spirit that we're to contend for it. So even when we come to matters about which we might disagree on our interpretations, that's never caused to divide. Instead, we have to be humble and approach this humbly. All three positions about the millennium that we're going to discuss in a little bit, but I want to get through the text first. Affirm the most important truths. There will be a sudden, visible, bodily second coming of Christ. The best is yet to come. And the millennium is leading ultimately, no matter what position you hold, to the glories and the return of Christ for his beloved bride, the church. There are things to respect and admire in each position. So as Scotty Smith says, what matters most today is not what position we take in ongoing millennial debates. What matters for each of us is to ponder how our position is affecting the way we live our lives to the glory of God. That's the important part. So let's read about the millennium. Uh, Chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. My friend Chuck used to have this giant Doberman that lived in his backyard who was on this big chain. And that's what comes to my mind. That's what uh, God is holding, the angel is holding here. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, puts him on a leash, throws him, hurled him, same word as in chapter 12, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that... He must be released for a little while. And then in a scene reminiscent of Daniel 7, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Remember, Christians were literally losing their heads. The people that this was written to, they were being beheaded by Rome. And so this is an encouragement to them. I saw those who had been beheaded. Where are our friends and family members? Who were beheaded for the sake of christ well here is where they are they are there beheaded for the testimony in the word of god and those who had not worshiped the beast or its images and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands they came to life and reigned with christ for a thousand years and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And now one last gasp. So we've seen the systematic destruction of Babylon. The earthly cultures and kingdoms and their power. We have seen the takedown of the beast and the false prophet. And now we see Satan has been put on a leash. And he is let go for one last period, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, there's another reference to Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire reminiscent of Elijah on Mount Carmel, came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is kind of the mop up action. The battle after the final big battle. Like a boxer staggering to his feet, he must come up one more time, even if only to be knocked down flat on the canvas forever. When I was teaching history... I learned about during the Civil War, even when the, the peace treaty was signed at Appomattox Courthouse, that it took a long time in the 1800s by horse and by word of mouth for a word to get out. There still, for days and weeks, were little skirmishes that were being fought between Confederate and Union soldiers. That's what this is similar to, these little skirmishes that are continuing to take place. So God has orchestrated the systematic takedown, and all of the enemies have now met their doom. And so the release of Satan, though unexpected and unwelcome to us, seems to be a part of the strange divine plan to ensure that all evil, every trace is rooted out in the world, allowing the great transformation into the new heaven and the new earth to take place. You've all been watching those horror movies where you think like the bad guy is dead and you think he's really dead. And then, you know, they're all kind of going about their business. And then all of a sudden, what? Rah, he pops up again. And then they got to kill him again. That, that's kind of the scene that we have here repeating itself. So God has to sweep the place clean. And then he has to light the broom on fire. Uh, if you think about um, contamination, uh, Ebola, right? those doctors and the nurses who attend to those kind of patients, they have to be sure that even when that is contained, that they burn their clothes that any medical instruments they use, all of those things, that's the picture here. Total annihilation, wiping it all out, throwing it in the lake of fire and sulfur. And so this is it. This is finally the end. And I love in reference to the resurrection, the idea that C.S. Lewis wrote about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Once the stone table is broken, death itself begins to work backwards. And so now the power of death has been broken once and for all. Evil has been vanquished. And so now we see the great white throne, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we have these very prophetic images. Haggai, Hebrews, heaven and earth being shaken and the throne room itself seems to be under reconstruction. God the creator at last takes his seat for the final judgment. This scene is reminiscent of Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days takes a seat on his throne when the court sat in judgment and the books were open. But if you read carefully, you will notice there are two books. There is the books of deeds. Implying, right, plural, that this is the deeds of every person who has ever lived. And then there is the book, which referred to three times in Revelation as the Lamb's Book of Life that was written before the foundations of the world. I appreciate what David Platt has to say about this. Every single one of us will be judged by God at the end of history. Many, many people have put their hope. That their good will outweigh their bad on that day. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Instead, two questions. Number one, did we put our faith in Christ's work? Two books, the book of your deeds and the book of life. Everything in the first books, even our best efforts, fall short and don't qualify us for eternal life. Now that doesn't mean that our deeds don't matter. Romans 16, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. But faith in Christ's work is our saving power. So question two, is there evidence of faith in our work? This was a huge question that John was putting before the people who claimed to be believers in the first century. And it's a huge question that the Bible places before us now. If there's no fruit of faith, then there's not really Faith. If there's no fruit in your life, then are you even a tree at all? What are you? And on that day, there will be no fooling anyone. And so, will all of our deeds be exposed and known? Yes. I remember as a teenager, there was one of these like you know, made-for-the-churches movies made in which they had these TV screens lined up, and on the Day of Judgment, you stood there and you watched all of the scenes of your life, right, play, and it was horrifying to a teenage boy, you know, at that moment. So what they were trying to capture was this sense that your deeds will come out. But again, our deeds, which we know we're guilty of, the things that are sin, we know that those condemn us, but the point here is that, of course, even our best deeds do not earn us favor before God instead it is the fact that we have trusted in the slain lamb to cover our sin that's what writes our name in the lamb's book of life and so yes our deeds should point to the fact that we know the lamb that he is our savior but it's that book that matters the most And so at that, right, death is finally defeated. The sea, we've talked about it before, mysterious, creepy, all of those things, it gives up its dead. Death and Hades, each one of them give up their dead. And death and Hades themselves are thrown in the lake of fire. And so I love what John Donne, the English poet said, death shall be no more, death thou shalt die that one day, death will not be the final victor. Instead, even the grave will give up those who are in Christ. And now, and now at long, long last, right? I mean, we've put you guys through it. The judgments, the bowls, the prophecies, all of it. And at last, the battle is over. Man, do you long for that day? Do you ever grow weary? And find yourself saying, come Lord Jesus. You watch the news. You just get overcome by the brokenness of this world. Do you know there's going to be a day when it's all over? Another thing C.S. Lewis said, when the author steps back onto the stage, the play is finished. And someday the author's going to come back and claim what's his. And it's finally all going to be over. Evil rooted out. The hope that does not disappoint. Romans chapter 5 will finally shine bright. And so next week, don't miss the last week. Like it's the good stuff. We've been through all this mess in these cycles and now we can let our hearts go. Revelation 21 and 22. And I don't think in this day and era we can preach this, talk about this, meditate on this too much. Uh, What it means that God is going to come back and right every wrong and make all things new. But before we get there, I know you're dying to talk about the millennium, right? You've been waiting all semester. So what I'm gonna do, there's a little appendix here. We're gonna walk through this. Obviously, in like 10, 12 minutes time, this is not comprehensive or complete. You can get a PhD in this stuff and still not plumb the depths of it and the interpretations and the commentaries are manifest. I mean, there's so much. But I'm gonna give you a quick seminary approach, which is a flyover of the different major perspectives Uh, It's a little bit of history about each one of them and then some conclusions. First of all, of course, the word millennium, a thousand years, right there from Revelation 20. Number two, throughout the history of the church, there have been basically three major views on this time and the nature of the millennium. Number three, amillennialism means ah, right? So, uh, you know, anti or no millennium holds that Revelation 20 describes the present church age. This view is called that because it maintains there is no future millennium. The millennium is symbolic. Or a thousand, remember, in Revelation always means a really long period of time. So there's not a future millennium yet to come. It's a figure of space, a figure of speech. I need to edit my notes. For a long period of time in which we are currently in. And so that little graph there, that's the best ones that I can find uh, that kind of lay it out for us. This view came on very early in church history with guys like Origen and Augustine, uh, kind of the first great theologian of the church, St. Augustine. Uh, This carried sway all of the way through to the Reformation and Martin Luther. Augustine and Luther, others, were very concerned that any other interpretation gives fuel to speculation and superstition. So ironically, when the church is, you know, when you look back in history, most accused of being superstitious during the medieval time, dark ages, all of that stuff, is when this view was the most popular. So most Christians throughout history have held to this view. Most Reformed theologians today still hold to this view. Guys like J.I. Packer and John Stott. The idea being that they take very true, that everything in Revelation is true, but it is mostly symbolic. And so the thousand years is symbolic of the age we're in now, the church age. Number four, the second major point, post-millennialism holds that Christ will return after the millennium. This position maintains that the progress of the gospel will increase until a millennial age of peace and righteousness occurs on the earth. So basically we evangelize, we're faithful. Things get so good here that Jesus says, you guys have done it. Here I come. I'm coming back for you. Christ will returns at the end of this period. They're very optimistic about the power of the gospel and the church to bring about much good in the world. This Uh, way of thinking really had its heyday in the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s. The age of progress in culture, uh, there was a religious awakening after the civil war in the United States. And so that ushered in a lot of things that we saw in the early 1900s, like the social justice and temperance movements, all of those kind of things. That was the idea that Christians, we can change the world onward. Christian soldiers, those kind of hymns, right, were written during those times. Uh, and so what's been interesting is it pretty much died out after World War I because you think the world's getting better and then what happened? A horrible war in which millions of people died and we realized with technology and everything, we were really good at killing each other and getting nowhere. That tends to put a little damper on the world's getting so good that Jesus is gonna come back, right? It has actually made a comeback, but through Pentecostal circles, We don't hear about this very much in our tradition, in our church line, right? But the idea of revivalism, of what's called kingdom now or dominion theology, teaches that as the spirit is being poured out in the last times, that's part of what's happening. And so guys like Pat Robertson, Kenneth Copeland, they adhere to this. Historically, people like Jonathan Edwards, he was a Puritan. So you get that. A Puritan says, we're going to make culture pure and then bring Jesus back. A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. B. Warfield, these guys. In uh, modern times, and this will be a surprise to some of you, R.C. Sproul, uh, who's generally known as a theologian, he, he leans into this view as well. He's also what's called a preterist. I'm really going to make your eyes glaze over with this. But preterists are a group of people who believe that a lot of the events in Revelation describe the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in AD 70. So a lot of it is kind of code for what took place there. Obviously, to believe that, you have to believe that Revelation was not written late in the 90s, in the first century, but instead in the 60s. So they're what you call a partial preterist because they believe that what happened in the fall of Jerusalem points to the eventual fall of the kingdoms of the world. So they believe in it's one of those prophetic things that telescopes out. But that's postmillennialism. Now we get to... What we call premillennialism, which holds that Christ will return before the millennium. This viewpoint has a long history from the earliest centuries onward in the church. There are two major possibilities or categories within this view. You guys are loving this, aren't you? So I told you we were going to get there. Classical or historical premillennialism holds that the church age will continue until there is a great time of suffering and tribulation on the church. Christ will then return to establish his millennial kingdom. The earliest church fathers, this was their viewpoint until Augustine, who, by the way, eventually from Augustine on, it was actually condemned as a heresy at the council at Ephesus at 431. So if you believe this, which ironically is what most evangelicals believe today, it was condemned as a heresy at one point in the life of the early church. Uh, But it made a comeback and mostly version B. So what's ironic is most of us who grew up in evangelical churches, version B of premillennialism, which is called dispensational premillennialism, is what we grew up with. And we view that as the traditional view. Ironically, it's the newest of all of them. It holds that Christ will return not only before the millennium, but also before the great tribulation. So what happened was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby got a hold of this in the 1800s. A person who picked up on it was a guy by the name of Schofield who put it in his reference Bible. How many of you own a study Bible with all the notes underneath? Okay? So let me remind you of a truth. What the Bible says is inspired. The notes underneath, helpful, but not the Word of God. But it was the only study Bible that was out there, and it was brilliant. But it had this, right, as part of the notes, this particular view. Therefore, because evangelicals were serious about studying the Bible, everybody reads the same study Bible because there was only one back then. And that was the one everybody had. And so that view took off and became the predominant view. And so that works its way into evangelicalism. Guys like Billy Graham taught it. Hal Lindsay in the 70s published a book called The Late Great Planet Earth that was built on this theology. And then, of course, the Left Behind series. Uh, was built on this as well. Dallas Theological Seminary, a guy by the name of John Valvard, uh, I have his commentary sitting on my shelf. He was the leading proponent. He became president of that seminary. You had to sign off on this if you were a DTS student. And so it made its way into a lot of Bible churches, a lot of Baptist churches, a lot of pulpits across uh, the country. And so what you'll notice that's unique is number three there on the little diagram, the rapture and when it occurs. Now we just read, read almost all the way through Revelation has the, have we talked about a rapture? It's not in the book of Revelation, which surprises a lot of people. It's in the book of First Thessalonians, uh, and so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more probably next week. But it, you, to get there, you have this is a composite view of all of them, and, and it's interesting. I put it here, number number six. A quick as quick as I could, right? Try to explain dispensationalism. It comes from the Greek word used about twenty times that means to manage, regulate, administer, plan. In this view, there have been seven dispensations that God has administered for salvation throughout history. So kind of each era of redemptive history had its own way that God was working to bring about salvation. And so it has the unfolding of the plan through the history of the world. It teaches that God revealed his plan progressively and interprets the Bible literally wherever possible. It keeps a careful distinction, one example, between God's plan for Israel and his plan for the church. So the seven dispensations were innocence and free will way back in the Garden of Eden, then conscience, right, man's conscience, but then government as God sent his people to impose structure, and then the promise, the old covenant of the Old Testament, Exodus and Genesis lay that out. Then, of course, the law of Moses all the way up through the sacrifice of Christ, then grace in the church age, and then eventually in the kingdom and millennium. There is a lot to like about this. You can chart it and graph it out. Uh, it's tidy. It's helpful. A guy like me really likes this system uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but it is pretty, pretty fascinating to get into it all. So number seven, our view of the millennium shapes the way that we live. Let's see if I can thread this needle for you. So as I've already told you, each of these views have people who believe the Bible is literally God's word and they hold to it. So we need to be careful about how we divide over it. And one thing that we need to recognize, though, however, is it does shape the way that we live. So amillennialists, for instance, live with a sense of urgency because they believe that Christ could come back at any moment. Dispensationalists say there are certain things that have to happen, for example, before Christ can return. Postmillennialists, before we write them off completely, are motivated to bring revival and social change because they believe that ushers in the return of Christ. Pre-millennialists take the Bible literally and emphasize Christ's command to fulfill the great commission. Panmillennialism makes for a really good joke. And that's what my pastor in Alabama used to say, right? In other words, it's all going to pan out in the end. You've probably heard that before. Okay. It makes a good joke, but honestly it makes for weak theology. So this isn't the kind of thing that is a salvific issue, your position on the millennium. Yet it's something that every Christian needs to lean into and grapple with because it does impact the way that you live. There is also, believe it or not, a category called non-millennialism that sees revelation as little more than the bad dreams of an old man-man locked away in exile. And a lot of skeptics and liberals, they really think that revelation should just be written off. Uh, it was debated about whether or not it should be included in the canon in the New Testament in the early church. And so they're just like, it's just a bunch of random stuff. As we've already seen, I think it is the inspired word of God. It is the bringing together of every storyline in the Bible to tell us that in the end, as my friend Don Brewer sums up Revelation with these words, right? Jesus wins. (laughs) Two words. And so I think it's there and it's important. So that's not a biblical position. But all three positions, as I've already noted earlier in the notes, affirm those most important truths. And it's important to remember, too, that God is the only, quote, true expert on these matters. Yes, there are faithful people who've devoted their life to studying these things and we should listen to them and learn from them. But remember, God's the only true expert. Let's learn from what he makes clear and not feed unhealthy fears or uh, uh, fuel unhelpful speculation. Uh, Jesus himself warned the disciples against that in Acts 1. I love what Dr. Paul Meyer, a guy who has written over 70 books, He has a medical doctorate in psychiatry. He also has a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary where he learned uh, from, from the president firsthand. He said, God resists the arrogant and gives grace to the humble. To be honest, I am not an expert on biblical prophecy. I love this. I'm an expert on the subject of why no one in his right mind at this time can be an expert on biblical prophecy. So let's be humble in how we approach this. A lot of you have asked, well, where does our church stand? Here's where our church stands Baptist faith and message. It doesn't prescribe a specific position on end times doctrine. Instead, using all of these verses below, there is a statement on last things God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised. Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, if you want to ask me personally, there are some that are stronger to me than others. There are two in particular that are stronger to me, amillennialism and classical premillennialism. I told you, if it was up to me, I really like dispensationalism because it ties things up really nice and tidy with a bow. But there are some parts of scripture that I really grapple with. So, but I want to be honest with you as your pastor, I'm still learning. I don't have a definitive position. I read certain verses and I go back and every time I teach through it and study it, I grapple with it. So hear me say I lean into it because I think it's important. I don't shy away from it. And yet at the same time, I'm not gonna stand here and tell you I got it all figured out and I'm an expert because I'm not. But I know what the Bible teaches is clear. And that's that Jesus is going to return. And if I am faithful to him, if I am trusting in him and in him alone for my salvation, then I am going to be on the right side of all of this when Jesus returns. However, it's going to play out. And so that's where we want to be And we want to be found faithful. So your application, again, this vision of Christ is designed to fuel in his people. I hope it's given you an unshakable hope. That hell, the beast, the dragon, they can do their worst. And yet, we know how the story ends. And so I hope this brings you great hope in a very, very broken world. Number two, I hope it drives you towards unwavering holiness. Your deeds you are going to account for someday before the throne of God. And so what we do in our lives should bear evidence to the fact that this is what we believe and this is what we put our hope and our trust in. And so as we journey in the world, we should live as people who are different and set apart. And number three, it should lead us to uncompromised mission because we know that we have a mission to fulfill. We know that at the end of history, there are only two groups in that battle, right? The beast, the dragon, and his armies, and those who come with the rider on the white horse. Now, I don't know about you, but I want me and my family and my friends and everybody I meet to be in the army of the white horse. I don't want to be on the other side because it will not end well for them. And again, that's not something to gloat over, that's something to grieve, that there will be millions who are deceived, millions who spend an eternity apart from God in hell. Because, in essence, they rejected the offer to come over to the other side. God extended to them time and time again hope. And that's one of the things you see in these cycles, right? I'm warning you, no, I'm really warning you. Well, it's getting bad out there, you better get on the right side. Again, like Peter says, God doesn't tarry because he's slow. He tarries because he wants us to have time to respond to him. And I think about that sometimes. What would have happened if Jesus would have come back before I responded to the gospel? What would have that meant for my eternity? But God was gracious to me. Therefore, I've got a story to tell. I've got a message to give. Turn before it's too. So as Stott says, we don't need a detailed forecast of future events, which has to be laboriously deciphered, but a vision of Jesus Christ to cheer the faint and encourage the weary. John's desire is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. All right. Thanks for hanging there with me. Okay. I know that was a lot, but I promise you, we get to the millennial stuff, and I had to follow through on my promise. Uh, if you want to talk more about that, I'm always available. We're right up against time. We have some deep questions. Anything that, yeah. One, one said, "How do we get to where
0: the right place pays it all from the cultural standpoint?"
1: Yeah. Grab that microphone.
0: Yeah. One, the main question was, how does the how do we get to where the bride pays it all, the bride's family pays it all, and that's just a cultural thing. Oh, um, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yes, yeah, that's yes. not a that's not a biblical thing. There's it actually. There's a uh, there's a there's an audio journal I to called the Mars Hill Audio Journal. It's done by a gentleman who was a Christian that was fired from NPR in 1984, and he has a he has a, a a report out there called "Wandering to the Altar," and it is a beautiful. Mm. Uh, path of how in America we got to where we are in how we date mm. and it is a fascinating understanding of how how culture changed the church mm in how we date. And while that's not exactly why we pay, why brides pray right, for things, right. that's, that is think, a think about,
1: for an analogy there, think about like our Christmas traditions, those kind of things, how they're a mishmash of several different cultures. That's how we've gotten in our culture to where we are with marriage and, and the traditions there. There's all kinds of fun things I remind people of all the time. You know why there's a groomsman. Two reasons. Today, number one, to balance out the picture, right? So... Because everybody wants to look at the pretty girls, not the dudes, right? All dressed the same, you know. But, no, really, back in the days of arranged marriages, you would not see the bride until your wedding day. And they were afraid that if she wasn't pretty enough, the guy would run. And so the groomsmen were there to keep, keep the guy from running
0: out the back door. True story? So the motto was to find slow groomsmen. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. you got to take, take things as you get them. That's right. Um, The other was how, to, how can we be sure that that was the one occurrence, the first occurrence of hallelujah in the New Testament? Generally, that's, I'm not sure how this was done. Generally how that's done, they have a translation of the Old Testament called the Sephagint. And what the Sephagint does is it tra- translates Hebrew into Greek. And so the word hallelujah would have a Greek equivalent in the Sephagint, And what you do is go look for that Greek word in the New Testament. And right. I don't know this for certain, but my guess is what they did was took the word for hallelujah in the Sephagint, And this is the first place that Greek term occurs in the New Testament. Right. Is that fair? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you can read the whole rest of the New Testament and you will not find the Hebrew equivalent of, of hallelujah.
0: A smart aleck says in 1912, it says he has a name written on him that no, only he knows. What we, could we speculate on what that might be? That's very helpful. <laughs> that's very helpful. Your guess
1: is as good as mine. Yeah, that's,
0: that's the reason he knows
1: it. I just think there's stuff sometimes God puts in the Bible to keep us on our toes. To be like, there's still things I know that you don't, Right. I've given you plenty of revelation to chew on and to deal with. So you, you deal with what I've revealed to you, but there's some things for me to know.
0: Another one says to, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. How does this work out in light of Revelation 25, right, where the dead come back to life?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that one, that's a, that's a philosophical thing, not a theological thing, is, as far as being present with God, being absent with the body is to be present with God.
1: Yes, what Paul, where Paul says that. Right. Yeah. Yes. So we're going to actually do a summer sermon series on eternity. And so that's going to be one of the things that I address. So preview of coming
0: attractions. <laughs> so he's uh, ducking your question until the... Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but not really. I mean, it's, it's
1: yes, the, the idea of, you know, that we will be separated if we die before Christ returns from our bodies. But one of the incredible truths about... The fulfillment of God's plan is that those bodies will one day be will be reunited with our bodies that will be resurrected in a glorified body like Jesus's. Amen. Because God isn't going to throw away what He created; instead, He's going to make it new. And that's one of the things I'll be honest I didn't grasp as a kid. You think of heaven as floating around on a cloud up there, okay? As we're going to learn next week, God's got even bigger and better plans than just "let's get out of here." He's going to recreate everything He created, and that makes my heart beat fast.
0: Yeah, praise God. Praise God. And, so, and the last question was what about those who never hear the gospel?
1: Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's we dealt with that in apologetics uh, a few weeks ago. One is Romans 1, right? God has made it evident to all men so they are without excuse. excuse. So we call that apologetics question, right? The myth of the man who's never heard the gospel. And so one of the realities the Bible tells us is is that he has left evidence of himself among all peoples in his creation, in his very creation, that if a person honestly looks at the intelligent design of the world around us, it will lead him to that place where he says there has to be something behind all of this. And that's where the gospel comes in. Uh, And so that's our mission is to fill in those blanks and to point them to, that's called general revelation, what God reveals in creation, to the specific revelation of his word.
0: Praise be to God. Amen. Praise be to God. Amen. Um, well, I'll pray, and we'll get one, of the, one of the other comments was to pray. And it came in when, when you were talking about you know, the, the, what was going to happen to the people who were condemned. Yeah. And it said, "Pray for urgency. Yes. Pray that, that we that we sense and when when we understand what happens to those that don't believe, because we don't really believe this is what's going to happen, for the most part, or at least we don't live like it, right? Yeah. yeah. When you when you meet people that are going to hell, right? What, what's that the, the the comic right? Pen or pen? Yeah. pen and he and says, you know, if you actually believe this is what's going to happen to me, how much do you have to hate me mm-hmm. to let this happen to me? To not tell me." How much do you have to hate me to not tell me, right? If this is what you actually, this is what you honestly believe is going to happen to me, how do you look me in the eye and not tell me, right? So let's pray for it. Let's pray that this, in addition to giving us a certainty, gives us an urgency. Good words. Right? Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word, Father, the truths in this. Father, uh, uh, it's confirming and condemning. Uh, father c- confirming your glory father and, 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 let it give us an urgency. Let us, let it motivate us father. Give us a, a, a sense of the time that's passing, uh, to share the gospel, to, to tell people the good news father, so that they can come home, so that they can come to know you and be saved. And on that day, be with us. Right, be with us. Be with that rider on the, right, on the white horse. And so, Father, that's what we pray. Give us the humility, the courage, and the obedience, Father. Because we know that comes from the power of your spirit. And open our eyes and our hearts to the opportunities before us and all around. You say the harvest is tremendous, but the workers are few. And so, Father, find us to be your workers. Show us the harvest, Father, and, and let us be faithful. So on that day, you will, you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And, and so, Father, let, let this revelation... Let your revelation motivate us to, to be faithful and steward your gospel well. Um, thank you for Jay. Thank you for his anointing. Thank you for this teaching, Father. Change us. And part of that changing be this urgency, Father. But don't let us be the same people that walked in here. Right. Uh, let, let us be different because we've encountered the truth and the risen Jesus. And it's in, his, in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.